Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with director Gary Sherman. Mr. Sherman has directed Raw Meat, Vice Squad, Dead and Buried, and Lisa. Lisa will be shown on Saturday, September 12th at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. More about this later. Now on to the interview. First question, Gilmero del Toro, the director of Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy, has said this about you, and I'm quoting, Gary Sherman has a perverse sense of humor, and he knows how to do very graphic stuff, very beautiful stuff, with a strange beauty and artistic sense, a sense of finding the beautiful and the horrible. Would you agree with that statement? <laughs> I guess so. I mean, that seems to be what I do. I mean, and, and um, you know, with, with the sense of humor, uh, I find that, you know, and, and, you know, starting with my first film, Deathline, I've, I've always found that, if you can kind of loosen up the audience with laughter, when you get to the horror, when you get to the, the fear, it, it just intensifies it because it gives it something to compare to. We're showing your movie, Lisa, and the movie was an original script by you and Karen Clark. Could you discuss the origins of the movie? Absolutely. My daughter who was a, a young preteen at the time, always used to complain to me that she never got to see any of my movies because all of my movies were R, and I didn't think that any of my movies were appropriate for her to see. So I initially wrote the story for Lisa in a first draft script as a gift to my daughter. I wanted to write something that she could relate to and that she could see. And when we had the disaster that at, at the end of, of Poltergeist 3, when, when Heather passed away, Heather O'Rourke, and MGM asked me to finish the movie, and I really didn't want to finish the movie, and neither did they, but we were kind of forced by MGM to finish the movie, they basically came back to me and said, you know what, bring us any script that you really want to make, and we'll do it. And I brought them Lisa, and they really liked it and said that they wanted to make it. Karen and I had worked on some television projects previous to working on Lisa. And I brought Karen in because I wanted a point of view of a daughter-mother relationship, which I had only observed secondhand, <laughs> obviously, Obviously, I, I could not be a daughter or a mother, <laughs> and Karen had experienced being both, so she was extremely, extremely helpful to me and valuable in the writing of the final draft screenplay by bringing that point of view to clarity. I was listening to the cinematographer Steve Poster audio commentary on Dead and Buried DVD, and he stated that you two would design the look of a movie or the visual content. When you made Lisa, how did you design the look or the of that movie or the visual content? What were you going for? Well, as Alex Napomnishi and I worked on the picture together, and I, I think it was the 
second or third picture that Alex and I had done. It was the third project that Alex and I had worked on together, I believe. And so we had quite a good working relationship by that time. And we spoke at length about what we wanted the picture to look like. You know, the theme of the picture, in a way, is very voyeuristic. It's people watching each other. It's these two little girls watching men. It's the candlelight killer who is a stalker who watches people. So I wanted the the film to have a very voyeuristic kind of feeling. And Alex and I basically decided to... Because we were shooting the film on 35mm, what is called normal on 35mm is to use anywhere from a 35 to 50mm lens, which basically recreates the human eye on a 35mm. The relationship between a 35 to 50mm lens in front of a 35mm focal plane actually duplicates the lens of the human eye and the size of the retina on which that image is projected. So we wanted the film to look as much like you were just watching it and you never got involved with the um, abstraction that exists when you use a wider lens than that or a longer lens than that. Um, I hope I'm not being too technical. So we wanted the whole film to feel very, very natural uh, in in terms of its look. And in terms of the color, we just wanted a very rich kind of city kind of feel, very kind of hip look to the picture. You know, Richard lives in a very stark environment, which is, you know, very minimalist, very Bauhausian, whereas Catherine and Lisa live in a loft that is very feminine and, you know, and very urban and very hip so that that you had the comparison between those two things. And and then everything else in the picture gave comparison to that, including, you know, Wendy's parents' country house and uh, and that. So, you know, the colors, the way that Richard dressed, the way that Lisa dressed, the way that Catherine dressed, all of those things went into the, the makeup of what we wanted the picture to look like and the feel that we wanted for the movie. In doing research, I've read that making Lisa, and I think I was quoting here you, a worst production nightmare. I, could you discuss the problems you had on the movie, or do you want to discuss the problems? On Lisa? Uh-huh, on Lisa. God, I don't really... Well, you're saying that the studio was going under... Oh, okay. Okay. Yes, we we did have <laughs> it was a nightmare, but it wasn't as much of a nightmare as some other movies that I've uh, that I've encountered. I mean, Dead and Buried I think was the worst in terms of production nightmares. But what happened on Lisa is that yes, we started to make the picture with MGM and we were supposed to make the film in Chicago. I had written it for Chicago. I had just finished two back-to-back projects in Chicago, had a great production team put together here, and actually brought Karen Clark to Chicago to you know, get a feel for Chicago as we wrote the final draft of the screenplay, or what we thought was going to be the final draft of the screenplay. So Frank Yablons and I were in Chicago 
looking at locations and interviewing crew and basically starting pre-production when we got a phone call from the studio saying, you guys better get back here. There's a problem. We flew back to Los Angeles to find out that MGM had declared bankruptcy. And we were told the picture was being shut down. We tried actually to move the picture to a different studio and there and, and Warner Brothers at the time was willing to well, not only willing, they were <laughs> anxious to make the movie because they had a deal with Frank and they and they liked me and they liked the script and but MGM, because of the fact that they were in bankruptcy, would not release the property because it was considered a valued asset of the bankruptcy. So what happened was that we had a $15 million budget on the picture at that time, which back then was a pretty sizable budget. And Frank and I sat down and figured out that if we reinvested our salaries and cut corners and moved the picture back to L.A. and went relatively nameless on the picture. I mean, Cheryl was our splurge, but not nearly at the budget that we had initially intended for that part. And just cut corners all the way around. We could actually make the picture for $5 million. And Frank and I funded the $5 million and did a negative pickup with the studio. It was either do that or not make the movie. And so we decided that we wanted to make the movie because we figured if if the movie stayed in the bankruptcy, it would be years before it came out of there and the film would probably never have gotten made. And we wanted to make it. Then when it came to opening the film, MGM had no money to open the picture. And the picture opened beyond their expectations and they did not have the funding to support it. So the picture was immediately sold off to uh, uh, home video and cable, which was really <laughs> a disaster for us. The, the first weekend of the film broke all kinds of records. And it only had the first weekend because the picture was pulled out of theaters after that because MGM did not have the budget to support a theatrical release. So, yes. <laughs> there were nightmares associated with making Lisa and distributing it. And um, you know, I'll always be quite sad that the picture never really got the theatrical run that it should have had. On the Vice Squad audio commentary, you stated that the MPAA had originally given Lisa an R rating and you got them to change their minds to get a PG. How did you go about that? We got the MPA to change the rating by Frank and I flew to New York and asked for an audience with the MPAA to ask for a change. And basically we said to them, we'll cut anything you think needs to be cut in order to not have an R on the picture because the picture was always intended to be, you know, PG 13. And that's what we wanted on the movie. And basically they came back and said that they couldn't specifically point out anything that needed to be cut. They felt it was the overall genre of the picture. And Frank very wisely pointed out to them that they're not allowed to rate a picture based on genre. It has to be on specific content. It can't be on the overall 
feeling of the movie. Their board went back and discussed it and came back to us and said Frank was right. And they changed the rating of the film back to a PG-13. Also on the audio commentary of Vice Squad, you stated that that film, Vice Squad, had become a warning to young people about coming to California. And while making Lisa, were you trying to make a statement of a warning to young people? I'm not sure it was a warning, but what Lisa's about is a relationship between a single mother and a daughter, which my daughter's mother and I divorced when my daughter was quite young. And so, in a way, my daughter was raised in a single-parent situation. I mean, she was either with my ex-wife or with me. So, uh, you know, I found that dynamic to be something that had been part of my life and something that I found to be interesting. I saw the effects of single parenthood on my daughter, and I just really wanted to write something about that and deal with that. But, you know, it's funny because the picture became like a huge hit on Lifetime television. The Lifetime network ran that picture over and over again, and it did huge numbers. So obviously women really related to that film in a big way. So I think that my kind of statement about, you know, single motherhood and mother-daughter relationships kind of came through, So, which made me quite happy. You wrote me in an email that MGM UA has uh, contracted you to have a Blu-ray created for Lisa, and what's the status on this? Not contracted me. I was contacted by the company that that was contacted, a, a gentleman named Walter Olson. You know what? And at the moment, I don't. Can't remember the name of, of the company, um, and I don't have any. Oh, Scorpion. Right, Scorpion. Walter Olson and his brother, who run the who run Scorpion, are just amazing film geeks. I mean, <laughs> these guys know more about every film and the smallest details, and about every filmmaker. They wanted to do an on-film interview with Ross Albert, who was the editor of Lisa and and myself, and we just had a great time. They did a a conversation between Ross and myself. And then we got to sit and talk with Walter and his brother, and it was just amazing. The facts that flowed out of these guys was fantastic. But anyways, they've done a digital scan, and the Blu-ray, which I believe will be released towards the end of this year, is going to be pretty fantastic. They've done a lot of additional material. They've interviewed quite a few people, and it's going to be a really good Blu-ray presentation. You also mentioned in the email that there stated there was a talk of a remake, and I was curious how serious is the talk? You know, the talk is serious, whether it actually happens or not, remains to be seen. We've been waiting for a response from MGM now for like five months. So, you know, we have to get the right from MGM UA before anything else can can proceed, but I would love to see a remake done because it'd be really interesting to technology, not the production tech. Well, production technology has changed a lot, but the on-camera storytelling part of technology has changed so greatly with cell phones and you know social media, and it would be really quite fun to use social media and cell phone technology 
in creating the the terror that exists in Lisa and how, you know, the girls would deal with that, how Richard, you know, the candlelight killer would deal with it. And uh, it's quite a fun thing to think about. So I would love to see a, a remake made. I was approached by one company that wants to make the remake, and we're also talking about possibly, you know, doing it as a co-production with them or, or moving forward in another way. When Frank Yablons and I were in serious conversation about this, and I spoke to him the day before Thanksgiving in uh, 2014, as we were and we were setting up a meeting for that following Monday, and unfortunately Frank passed away that night. He, I, I guess, he had a heart attack in his sleep and and passed away, which was just a shock to everyone, which kind of slowed down the talks. <laughs> so we're we're now dealing with how to do the remake without Frank's input which Frank was very involved in the making of this film. I've noticed that Lisa and your other movies, huge portions take place during the night, both Vice Squad and Poltergeist 3. The entire movie takes place during the night. What's your attraction to the night? <laughs> my, my, you know, if, if you ever look through the crew lists on my films, you'll see that I use almost the same people all the time. I, I, I try to make my crew a family, and they have dubbed me the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> they know when they come to work for me, they're going to be working at night. I I love the look of night shooting. I love the look of wet streets like we did in Vice Squad, where you know, I, I think one of our biggest expenditures on, on Vice Squad was a water truck. <laughs> We had we wet down everything on on Vice Squad. You know, Lisa probably has more daytime stuff in it than just about anything else I've ever shot. Night's a scary time, especially in the city. And you know, most of my films have been very urban. Dead and Buried was kind of you know rural, but it still had a city kind of sensibility and urban sensibility. You know, I suppose it, it all began with with Deathline, I mean, which took place underground where there is no light. One of the reasons I make scary movies is because I'm in touch with what scares me. And I guess I find darkness scary. And so it just becomes an element that I enjoy using. And I love the visual of darkness. As cameras have become more and more sensitive the blacks and, and you know and shadow has become even more and more of a, a thing for me to do dark scenes i like darkness i am the prince of darkness <laughs> <laughs> well while we're on the topic of darkness steve poster mentioned a documentary he did with you called cry angel dark side of chicago and i'm curious could you discuss that documentary and what it was about yeah no. Cry Angel um, was actually a scripted, I'm surprised Steve called it a documentary. It was about urban myth and urban fears, and and I suppose in that way you could call it a documentary, but it, it was totally scripted and, you know, a, a complete drama. And in fact, 
Steve and I have been looking for a print of it because it was something we shot on 35 millimeter prints are in 35 and it's hard to lug 35 prints around with you in your life. You know, it's a lot easier today when you can put something in a jump drive and have it forever. Cry Angel was basically my first dramatic, major dramatic uh, acting thing. I think it was like 12 minutes long or so. I, you know, I, boy, I think we did it in 1968. It's a long time ago. <laughs> a really long time ago. I mean, we were kids and we were fresh out of college. And uh, I think actually I was still working in, in graduate school when we did that. It was when Stephen Poster was Stevie Poster. <laughs> and doo I mean, you know, at the time that the two of us were just, you know, like, if I would get a job, I'd hire Steve, and if Steve would get a job, he'd hire me. And, uh, you know, we were in Chicago just trying to become filmmakers. But Cry Angel is about a guy who goes out for a walk in the city and starts imagining things. And all the urban legends kind of thing pop up in his mind, and uh, and he acts something out and thinks he's doing one thing, and in the end... He thinks he's come across a, a warehouse full of statues and plaster statues, and he just takes an axe and starts breaking them up because they're causing him to to react in strange ways. And in the end, he realizes it's an actual human being that he destroyed with the axe. This is my first horror film. <laughs> so that's about all I can say about Cry Angel. Okay. We never really got distribution on it. We had an idea about doing short films that could play theatrically, but it was an idea that was before its time. So that's about all I can say about Cry Angel, although I'd love to see it again (laughs) if I can find a print. Well, you directed a movie called Deathline. You've mentioned that before, but my DVD is called Raw Meat. Do you know why there was a switch in the titles? Okay. That this one I love to talk about. Yes, we made Deathline in London. Jay Cantor and Ellen Ladd Jr. were the executive producers, and Paul Maslansky was the producer. Jonathan Demi was supposed to be the producer. Jonathan and I were friends and and had a production company in London. We made commercials. Then we were actually doing a commercial for Procter and Gamble a deodorant commercial, which we were shooting down in the South Downs, just outside of Brighton. It was a big project, and we were there for a long time. And the agency producer was a guy named Carrie Jones, who had just written a novel. And I had the idea for Death Line, and Carrie and I wrote it while we were doing this commercial, wrote a script, gave it to Jonathan. Jonathan reads it. He goes, oh, man, we got to make this movie. He gives it. To Paul Mislansky, Paul reads it and says, wow, this is a really good script. We should make this. He took it to Jay Cantor and Ellen Ladd Jr. because he had just finished producing a picture for them in Israel. And they looked at it. And Jonathan went in to meet with Jay and Laddie and kind of pitched me as a director the same way that he did for commercials and convinced them that I should direct the film. And boom. But in the meantime, Jonathan went to Los Angeles for something and ended up going to work for 
Roger uh, Corman. Corman. Roger Corman, yeah. And Jonathan calls me and says, Roger Corman's offered me a job and I really want to do this. I said, you know, hey, man, you know, go for it. So Paul Mislansky stepped in and and ended up producing the film, which I think is what Jay and Letty wanted anyways, because at that time, Jonathan had no track record, although Jonathan's gone on to do great things, because Jonathan's an incredibly intelligent and very talented guy. Jay and Letty raised the money from a company in New York, and we made the film in London, sold it in Europe to rank Fox. We had an offer from Paramount, and Frank Yablon, that's when I first met Frank. Frank was president of Paramount, and Frank saw the movie in, in on a visit to London and said, I want this for Paramount. And we were about to sell the film to Paramount when we heard from our financiers who had sold the film to AIP, which we were not happy about, but we couldn't stop them from doing it. And it was Samuel Zarkoff who renamed the film Raw Meat because he didn't think that the American public would understand the title Deathline. And then he recut the film. He cut the tracking shot out, which was probably the most, you know, important shot in the film at, you know, real four of the movie uh, is one shot that took two days to, to do Arkoff's. No, an audience won't sit through that. I think he had never watched any of Orson Welles' films like Touch of Evil. <laughs> Audiences will sit through a tracking shot, or Hitchcock, who did many long, long, long shots. Anyhow, it, it unfortunately was sold to them. There was a lawsuit because of um, cross-collateralizing that was done, and it was it was a whole mess. Anyway, so the picture hardly got an American opening, which was very disturbing for me. It was my first film, and it was doing gangbuster business in Europe as Deathline and died in the United States as raw meat and hardly got, you know, a viewing here. And, you know, which drove me away from feature filmmaking and took me back to doing commercials for a long time. And it wasn't until Jay and Laddie talked me into moving to the United States that I even thought about, um, uh, or back to the United States, that I even thought about making a movie again. And, you know, when my next movie was Dead and Buried, was like, but many, many years later, almost 10 years later. But anyway, so the raw meat title stuck in America. And when MGM UA bought the rights to distribute Deathline as home video, they were stuck with the name. There was a problem in them getting the, in clearing the rights to release it as Deathline. They had to call it raw meat. Although the DVD that they released is the original F-line cut. The cuts that Samuel Zierkoff made in the film died <laughs> with the death of AIP, fortunately. The film that is called Raw Meat on, on DVD and, and VHS is F-line. Scorpion is presently negotiating the rights to do Deathline is a Blu-ray, oh. and uh, which I'm really excited about. Actually, I talked to Walter last night and, and talked to Jay Cantor, and, and they're working together to get this done. And we will go back and actually make 
a new digital master. I have the original answer print of the film, and they're going to make the digital master from the answer print. They're going to have to fix scratches and stuff like that, but they'll do that. But they'll look a lot better than anything that's been released. on, uh, And it will be released at Deathline, you know, and it'll have lots of extras. <laughs> Fantastic. So I'm really excited about that. And they're also negotiating to do Vice Squad. Scorpion wants to do a whole Gary Sherman subsection, so uh, which is really exciting for me. So I'm really thrilled. You also worked with the makeup man, Harry Frampton, who worked on Kind Hearts and Cornets. And could you talk about the makeup design that uh, Hugh Armstrong wore? Um, did you give instructions to Mr. Frampton? Oh, Harry and I worked very closely on what Hugh Armstrong looked like in Deathline. And Harry was amazing. He was just an amazing human being. I mean, he was a very, very funny guy. And, you know, when when he first came to interview with me about doing the picture, the first thing he says is, how long is the shooting schedule going to be on this film? And I told him, and he says, oh, that's good. He says, I have enough material to cover that. I said, material? He says, yeah, you have to keep people happy in the makeup room. So I have these kind of stand-up comedy routines that I do. <laughs> <laughs> And he he was just absolutely wonderful, and and then he you know and we we you know we looked through medical books about the effects of septicemia and you know septicemic plague. We went through dermatological books and everything, looking at different skin rashes and stuff. And then Harry comes in one day and says, "I have got it. I have figured it out. I know exactly what we should do." And he comes in with a box of Rice Krispies <laughs> and some and and, and uh, rubber cement. <laughs> and he says, "Look at this!" And so he takes rubber cement and smears it all over my hand, and then pours the Rice Krispies on my hand, and then smears more rubber cement over the Rice Krispies. And I'm looking at my hand, and it looks like the worst rash that anybody's ever had in their life. And he says, "That's the makeup." <laughs> Basically, that's what we went with. I mean, Hugh's face was covered in Rice Krispies. <laughs> huh. Yeah, and you know, and and Hugh was involved too. Hugh spent weeks at London at the London Zoo watching primates and and then some predatory animals to really come up with how he wanted to portray the man in the film. He was amazing. Hugh was just incredible and how he was going to do this. Sometime when we're just talking about Deathline, I have lots of Deathline stories. <laughs> <laughs> also in Deathline, was there a political subtext to that movie? Um, this was about the going on in the country in the late 60s and early 70s that you inserted into the movie? There's a political subtext to all of my films because I am a, a, a diehard <laughs> when it comes to politics, I, my whole life is from the time I was little because I I grew up in a household that was political. My my father was a left leaning Democrat his whole life. I've kind of followed in his footsteps. In fact, I kind of went even further to the left. I was very involved in the hippie and yippie movement in the 60s and was, was very much, you know, a, a political 
radical. And uh, so almost everything I do in my life has political overtones. And and I really chose the horror genre because the horror genre was a place that I could take my political feelings and wrap them up in a horror film. And people didn't realize that they were watching a political film. And so absolutely, Deathline is 100% a political statement. It talks about class. It talks about racism, which is something that's, you know, the fight against racism has been part of my life since I was probably six years old. I, I just believe human beings have to be treated as human beings. And what we look like, where we come from, all of those things are irrelevant to the fact that we are human beings that love and are loved and have the the capacity for love, and um, and that's how we have to look at other people. I do have to ask about the ode to Barry Lyndon scene in Vice Squad. You worked with the great cinematographer John Alcott, who also photographed Barry Lyndon. And what does it take to photograph a scene using nothing but candlelight? <laughs> it takes a lot, and in fact. The prop master who was in charge of candles on Barry Lyndon was someone that I worked with, with Joe Teeger and, and his brother Tony Teeger. They were involved in all of my early films and commercials. I, I'd done commercials with Johnny in London. He was not only probably one of the all-time great cinematographers, but he was also a very, very dear friend of mine. So when I called John and asked him to come over to the States, to do Vice Squad, he was very excited about it. And, you know, I said, you know, I, I just want to take a movie that should really look gritty and make it look gritty and beautiful at the same time. And I thought there was no one who could do a better job than that than John. So basically the whole film, we, we used no major lighting on that whole film. He, he lit the whole thing with small lights at that time with kind of low light kits, which are just, you know, very small lights. And it was a film being shot completely at night. And it was one of the first films shot on high-speed film. We used a, a Fuji high-speed film on that that we did quite a few experiments with before. And uh, it was just amazing. So anyways, when we had, to, we had that scene, the, the wedding scene... <laughs> And I won't explain it any more than that. you got to watch Vice Squad to understand the wedding scene. I, I said to John, you know what? Let's light it with candles. And he said, oh, you got to be kidding. I said, no, no, no. I said, this is an ode to your completely candlelit film. And he said, okay, <laughs> I'll go for it. And, I mean, he worked very close with, you know, with everybody, props and everything. Uh, looking at candles, figuring the you know the the, uh, the color temperature of the candles and everything else, it was pretty amazing and it was pretty intense. And the producers were going crazy on me because it was taking so much time. But we did it and we picked up the time somewhere else, and it it was just fun to do. <laughs> it was just a kick. <laughs> I would like to thank Gary Sherman for doing the interview. Please come to the Downtown Public Library Saturday, September 12, 2015 at 2 p.m. to see Lisa. 
Today's music is by Will Malone from the movie Raw Meat. 